Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 148, The Bonding. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week, we examine an episode of Star Trek with the intention of finding the morals, meanings, messages, and asking ourselves, no, really, why are there kids on the Enterprise? So you're asking yourself that question, but you always do. I think you're just frustrated that you weren't one of the kids on the Enterprise. Don't don't have you open the old wounds, Ken. <laughs> just don't. <laughs> this week, we have a perfect episode to ask that question and many, many others. It is The Bonding. In just a moment, John is going to bring you some excellent trivia about this episode. But first, I want to remind you how you can bring things to any future episode that we have. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter if you would like to get in touch. That handle again is Mission Log Pod. You can call us, 323-522-5641. That number again is 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents and all kinds of fun stuff, is at missionlogpodcast.com. Please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And uh, sometimes those comments are trivia. And that would be the purview of one Mr. John Champion. Here we go, Ken. All right, today's episode was directed by Wienrich Kolbe. Now, um, we've talked a little bit about him. He's directed a few episodes we've discussed, and there will be a lot more to say about him as we move along in Next Gen and into later Star Trek series. He was born in Germany, if uh, the name didn't fool you, and uh, was derailed from starting an architecture career when he went to Vietnam serving in the U.S. Army. After that, he broke into TV working on shows like The Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew Mysteries, and he was a producer on the original Battlestar Galactica. Now, today's episode is written by Ronald D. Moore. Remember how we mentioned that Moore was just a kid on a tour of the set when he asked a friend if he could get his script looked at? Um, This is that script. Uh, Susan Sackett helped him get an agent so it could be submitted properly, and it was Michael Piller who got him the job after finding that script in the slush pile with all the other, hmm, this is interesting, but we'll get to it later scripts. This script is his first produced and credited entirely to him. He did have a little bit of help, though. Michael Piller and Melinda Snodgrass worked on the script, too. Uh, There are a few missing scenes here. There's more at school on the Enterprise and an additional moment with Deanna Troy talking to Jeremy about the death of her own father. Um, You may mention that we are back at the computer core set. Love that set that we first saw in Evolution. Too bad we'll never see it again. Uh, A couple of guest stars we need to mention here. Now, uh, Jeremy Astor is played by Gabriel Damon. He was 13 years old when this episode was made. Throughout the mid and late 1980s, he had a number of good acting credits, uh, amazing stories, Call to Glory, One Big Family. He did voice work on everything from Superman to Tailspin to The Land Before Time. He turned his focus into post-production, but then he came back to act here and there starting in the early 2000s. Jeremy's mother, Lieutenant Marla Astor, was played by Susan Powell. She has a handful of TV guest star roles prior to Next Gen. You have Quincy, M.E., Emergency, Six Million Dollar Man. And then those kind of trail off to only a handful 
after her appearance here. Um, spoiler alert for you, Ken, and for the audience. Um, we don't actually ever hear from Jeremy again. And it's too bad. Um, Ronald Moore has stated that he didn't have any more stories to tell about him. And they just kind of went in another direction with the core characters that we have here. Um, he also says that at the time, uh, that kind of continuation was rarely done. And uh, weirdly enough, uh, Ronald D. Moore and director Vindra Kolbe had... Uh, they they both publicly stated that they weren't really fans of uh, Gabriel Damon Jeremy's performance. So maybe that's why. Okay, there are two things I'll say really quickly. Yeah. First of all, if Michael Dorn ever gets that Star Trek show that he keeps talking about going, <laughs> right, and, and people yeah. listening in the future can be like, if he ever gets it going, it was the best Star Trek series ever. Right, exactly. Yeah. But if he ever gets that going, maybe he can uh, maybe he can go ahead and bring young Jeremy Astor back. Because, you know, he is part of his family. Yeah, yeah, for for, for now and forever. Yeah, they're bonded. Yeah, they are bonded. That is what yeah. I hear. I think that might actually mm-hmm. come up in the uh, in the recap. I'm not sure. <laughs> Other thing I'll say though, it's a poor workman who blames his tools. <laughs> right. Come on, Mister yeah, Colby, yeah. you're directing. I'm not saying that every actor is going to be amazing, but yeah, dude, how do you walk away from that going, boy, does that kid suck? I pity whoever has to direct. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and that's what's so funny because. He's got a lot of good acting credits. Apparently, <laughs> is not not that bad, you know. Well, so it, it is a little strange, but but I, I feel like we will probably get into this a little later because there's another yeah. scene that I picked out where I feel like Star Trek doesn't always know what to do with kids. The one the one thing I will say, um, I have a friend who often says about people in real life, you know, oh, that person looks like they're from Central Casting. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jeremy actually was, of course, <laughs> from casting because you know, he was cast. But I mean, he's got the perfect look. I mean, he's got a perfect sad little boy, you know, kind of look. But but the acting part, well, maybe we should actually get mm-hmm. to the part where, you know, people get to the acting. While this is not that kind of episode, the title, The Bonding, makes one wonder how many shades of gray we are talking about this time. From the bridge of the Enterprise, we hear that Commander Worf is leading an away team of a few scientists. They're studying the ruins of a civilization known as the Koinonians. The Koinonians destroyed themselves in war long, long ago. Though she said nothing, Counselor Troy looks uneasy. Suddenly, she tells the captain to beam the away team up immediately. This happens a few seconds before Worf's call for an emergency beam up, which is a few seconds too late for one of the away team. Dr. Crusher reports her dead on arrival. Act 1. Picard says the Enterprise will stay and investigate what happened. Worf says sensors indicated no weapons or traps. What should have been a routine mission has ended in the death of the ship's archaeologist, Marla Astor. She leaves behind a 12-year-old son, Jeremy, whose father is also dead. And the boy is on the Enterprise. Worf wants to go with Picard when he tells Jeremy, after all, he did lead the away team, but Picard says it's his job. But it'll take Troy. Picard tells Riker on speakerphone that he's going to deliver the bad news to Jeremy. At the helm, Wesley Crusher says he remembers that talk with Picard as well. Wes asks Riker how you get used to delivering such news. Riker says you hope you don't get used to it. Cut to Worf doing a scene from the Scottish play, maybe? That was weird. Picard and Troy have a heart-to-mind on the way to see Jeremy. Kids on a starship. Kids don't sign up for this. Sure, he'd have to deal with loss no matter where he is, but the Earth isn't going to go into battle in the neutral zone. Seriously, his mom signed up for this. 
he didn't. Troy says he'll get over it, in time, with help, just like Wesley. Ooh, too much salt on that wound, Captain Picard? Seriously, Wesley gets it, and so will Jeremy. Jeremy takes the news with a stoicism worthy of, well, a stoic. He says he's all alone now, though Captain Picard tells him, on the Starship Enterprise, no one is alone. No one. Act 2. Data and Riker discuss the grieving process. How well did you know Lieutenant Astor, asked Data. Riker says, not very. How well did you know her? Why do you ask? Well, you ask me. No, seriously, why do you ask? Someone's dead. Is it less tragic if you didn't know them? Riker says, remember how it felt when what's-her-name died? Blonde woman stood in the back where Worf stands now. You were intimate with her. Data says the death of Lieutenant Astor does not feel the same. But is that right? Riker says maybe we should feel the loss just as deeply. If we did, human history would not be so bloody. LaForge has returned from the site of the explosion on the planet. Six explosive devices, undetectable if they were hidden. But these weren't hidden. They were set out as if to be found. But by whom? Yeah, right? Troy and Worf talk over his feelings after Marla Astor's death. He has no shot at revenge. Her death was senseless. She was the last victim of a forgotten war. But what's the point of talking about it? Worf says a leader must stand alone, like Captain Picard. Though Troy says Picard talks to her. Fine, let's talk about this. I want to make Rus die with Jeremy. Symbolically and ceremonially, Jeremy will become part of Worf's family. Yeah, says Troy, maybe it's a little too soon for that. He's angry. Eventually, that will be directed at Worf. Be with him, talk with him, and when the time to honor Jeremy's mother with the offer of the bonding is right, they'll know. In his quarters, Jeremy is watching cat videos. So little changes between the 21st and 24th centuries. Actually, this is a family video of Jeremy, of his cat, and of his mom. His reflection is interrupted by a visit from Worf. Fun fact about Klingons. We hope to die in the line of duty, just like your mom did. We don't grieve the loss of the body. We celebrate the release of the spirit. Jeremy says he understands. But Worf says understanding is one thing. They need to bring meaning to her death. Maybe they could work on that. Picard and Troy talk over Jeremy. He's doing well. Too well. He needs to break apart so he can be put back together. Troy's asked Beverly to ask Wes to talk to Jeremy. The wild card is Worf. He's hurting too. He wants to do the Rostai thing with Jeremy. And it's too soon. But Picard is sure that Troy can handle it. Riker pipes in. There's an energy field on the planet's surface near where Aster died. Suddenly Troy is sensing a presence on the planet. Emotions are high on the ship, though. She can't get a clear read on whatever's down there. Wes stops by to see his mom. Hey, Wes, Troy wants you to talk to Jeremy. You know about how tough it was to lose your dad. Wes is resistant, though Beverly says, We had each other, Wes. He's got no one. Wes says he'll think about it. Then he practically forces his mother to talk to him about the death of his father. You know, her husband. He's sad that sometimes he can't remember his father's face. She finally confides that sometimes she can't see anything else. After what feels like an interminable period of time... She shows affection to her son. On the bridge, they're still trying to get a handle on that energy reading on the planet. LaForge says sensors are going a little nutso. Whatever Troy was sensing, she suddenly gets a spike, though she's apparently not going to share that with anybody during Act 2. But the camera will. 
out of nowhere, Marla Astor appears to be back in her quarters with her son. Act 3. The bridge can't figure out what's going on with the energy thing on the planet. Troy's finally going to let us in on her secret, though. There is a presence on the Enterprise. Sensors don't sense it, but it's there. They set the yellow alert. In their quarters, Marla tries to comfort Jeremy. They were wrong about her being dead. Seriously, don't you think about it anymore. I'm never going to leave you again. Slowly, Jeremy opens to Marla's affection. Now, time to leave the Enterprise. Wait, what? Marla says they're going to live in a home. On the planet. Just like they used to on Earth. Worf stops by to see Jeremy and finds Lieutenant Astor in Jeremy's quarters. Don't worry, she says. I'm here for the boy. Worf calls to let the bridge know what he's found. Picard says keep an eye on them, but don't do anything until I get there. He also orders security to fly casual in that direction, but don't do anything. Now Jeremy and his... mom? are on their way to Transporter Room 3. That's where Picard catches up with them. Picard asks who she is. She says she's Jeremy's mom, and Jeremy agrees. They're going to go live on the planet now, but Picard says that can't happen because he doesn't know who or what she is. But she's not Marla Astor. Jeremy quizzes Picard on this, and the captain assures the boy that that's not his mom. When Jeremy is far enough away from Marla, Worf grabs him and takes him, kicking and screaming from the transporter room. As he does, Marla disappears. Act 4. Jeremy's pissed, though Troy says, Dude, that wasn't your mom. Why would your real mother want you to go down to the planet? There's nothing there but dust and rocks. So the Marla thing makes their old home on Earth, on the Enterprise. How did you do it? asks Jeremy. Does it matter? asks the Marla thing. Yes, says Troy, it matters. The Marla thing doesn't get everyone's resistance. It makes Jeremy happy. Troy says it's not real, but Marla goes about convincing Jeremy that it is. Troy argues for Jeremy to come with her, but the boy says he can't. Troy tells the bridge that Jeremy is in no immediate danger. Whatever the Marla thing is, she seems to want to help. Riker and Dr. Crusher can't blame Jeremy for wanting to stay with her or it. Reality sucks right now. What she offers is awesome. Picard says, stay with him in the quarters, Troy. He'll try to put an end to this from the bridge. How will they do that? Well, whatever is happening needs energy. The force causing it is drawing that energy from the Enterprise. Maybe if they change up the ship's shields, it'll cut the ability for the thing to draw energy, thus killing the power tap. They warn Troy that something's about to happen. Troy tries to warn Jeremy. The Marla thing starts to argue, but the power is cut. Jeremy and Troy are back in his regular quarters, and the Marla thing is gone. Jeremy is understandably disappointed. The bridge is pleased over a job well done, a feeling that lasts for, ooh, five seconds, maybe seven. A concentrated burst of energy shoots up from the planet. Now it is roaming the Enterprise, learning everything it can. Then it's back to Jeremy's quarters, which it turns back into their old home, saying, Come, Jeremy. We will not let them separate us again. We're going home. Act 5. Troy tells Picard that the Marla thing is back and is trying to take the boy. Picard initiates lockdown protocols, blocking corridors, shutting down transporters. Jeremy's going nowhere. Time for another talk between Marla and Captain Picard. Here's what happened. The physical beings you call the Koinonians shared this planet with a race of energy beings, as seen here. The Koinonians killed themselves in war. The thing that killed the real Marla Astor was a remnant of that war. And the energy beings cannot let that idiotic remnant of those idiotic wars in that idiotic time cause any more pain. 
so they've converted energy into matter. You can call her Marla. They'll make Jeremy happy. The Marla thing says she will be every bit his mother. But, says Picard, not his mother. He calls for Wesley Crusher to come to Jeremy's quarters. While we wait, the Marla thing wants to talk philosophy. What is so noble about sorrow? I can provide him an existence where he will feel no pain, no anguish. It is at the heart of our nature to feel pain. And joy, says Picard. It is an essential part of what makes us what we are. Bottom line, Jeremy has to deal. We are mortal. Our time in this universe is finite. That is one of the truths that all humans must learn. And now let us demonstrate the grieving process for you and for Jeremy. Wes comes in to say, Boy, was I mad at you, Captain Picard. I wondered why you lived, but my dad died. But I got over it. And here comes Jeremy's anger. Why, Worf? Why did my mom die? Why didn't you? Troy says Worf cannot answer that. But there's a bit of symmetry here. Worf's parents also died in the line of duty. When he was alone, humans helped him. Now he'd like to help Jeremy. Your family is gone. Marla Astor now only lives in our hearts. But Worf would like for Jeremy to be part of his family. Through the bonding, their families will be stronger. Seeing that the boy will be fine, well cared for, and eventually happy, the Marla thing leaves the ship and the boy willingly. The end. I should say, by the way, that the scene from the Scottish play was actually Worf contemplating Rustai, which we see at the end of the show, so now, really, the end. I like that double ending. That was good. Well, for symmetry, I mean, not for symmetry, but just for the sake of the storytelling, yeah. it actually ends better if you're telling the story with the Marla thing, deciding, okay, he's going to be fine, I'm going to go now at the end. Except, you know, there is mm-hmm. that part where Worf's sort of hanging out by himself in a dark room. <laughs> it was it was kind of, you know, it was it was weird to right. see that the yeah, first, the first time or two. Yeah, the first time or two when, you, when you're watching it, it's like, what what's he doing? Oh, okay, that's going to come back later. You only find out later. Right. Hey, if those energy beings were so upset about the remnants of that war and they can convert energy to matter and they can do all kinds of cool stuff like that, why were they not picking up the landmines? Um, well, there was nobody around, was there? I guess not, but they might think that, oh, one day somebody will be here. Or, yeah. hey, we'll send somebody to hang out in the caves and make sure that nobody who does show up here steps on a landmine. We're actually going to come back to uh, part of that later. So okay. I, I don't want to go too far into that now. But yeah, you, you, you ask a good question. Of course, then we wouldn't have a show, right? Right, we would Captain's not. Log. We landed on a planet, looked around for a while. It was kind of cool. <laughs> well, see you next yeah. week. <laughs> that's what happens in between the episodes. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the episodes true. we don't see. Wow. How many missions do you think they're actually doing versus the number we actually see? I know, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All the boring stuff, you know? Yep. Uh, Picard is right that it's not his job per se to watch after the continued emotional well-being of the boy. And and, and it's kind of interesting how he's very clear cut about that. Cavalier Uh, even. Cavalier even. Yeah. And and it's equally interesting uh, that moment that Picard doesn't get it right at first that being brave is not really a good thing for Jeremy. Um, I, I like that scene quite a bit mm-hmm. um and then a, a little bit later you know uh, he even reiterates i break the unpleasant news you stay with them yeah <laughs> you know he's, he's very clear cut about uh but you're good at it so yeah. i don't even worry i don't even mm-hmm. i don't even think about it anymore i don't mm-hmm. i'm you know if i see jeremy tomorrow after you talk to him today i'm gonna be like hey why the long face young man <laughs> <laughs> right. oh right. that's right i forgot 
Yeah. I'll get Counselor Troy over to you. Uh-huh. And I was kind of amused at uh, his speech about allowing kids on the – well, not really a speech, but the conversation with Troy about allowing kids on the Enterprise because I kept thinking, putting on the writer's hat, that – this sounds like a moment directly inspired by argument among the writers and producers of the show and, and quite possibly from viewer feedback hmm. saying, why are there kids? And then they have to have somebody kind of speak to that point. So why not have Picard speak to that point? We already know from the beginning he was not thrilled about Wesley being there, but then he kind of had to grow on him. I got, you know, I, I got I to gotta make an argument for having kids on there. And I can't remember if I used this example before, but it's kind mm-hmm. of the cats in the cradle, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people watching Star Trek are also living lives and they're working and they have kids. And it's quite possible that a lot of them are being completely consumed by, you know, their work life and they're ignoring their kids. Or maybe they think they have to decide between a family and a career. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. that's that's been one of the, that was one of the things that was the sense that you got from from Kirk. Yeah. yeah, he could yeah, have had sure. Janice Rand as a girlfriend, but he's got this other woman, the Enterprise. And then, of course, by the time you get to Star Trek Two, it turns out, wow, he actually had a girlfriend, and he had, you know, he did it. He had oh, green, he had green memories at one point because suddenly now he's got this kid that we never knew about. But of course, they were going to live separate lives because he had to work, and she had to do what she had to do, which turns out was also work, but <laughs> more of a home, right. more of a homebound kind of work as opposed to or, or a planet bound kind of work as opposed to gallivanting off across the stars. Right. So I don't know. I mean. I like the fact that they examine the question. I don't. I don't feel like it is a question that, yeah. that can be decided because I feel like it's actually, though subtly, it could be one of the questions that we're meant to address. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that, and that's why I addressed it because I, I do think it's a very interesting question, and I, I'm usually going to come down on the side of saying that it's not a good idea to have kids, not at least in that kind of a mission. The original mission was five years. This mission is seven, ten, twelve years. You know, uh, the, the well, Galaxy Class Enterprise can keep going it's and a, going. And it's going. a continuing mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we don't really yeah. know. Could it could be a year and a half? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. I, I now speaking of kids on the Enterprise, I, I do think that my least favorite scene is Wesley and his mom, and you recap that nicely. Um, that mm-hmm. he is so put off at the idea that she would even ask him to talk to Jeremy. And I, I was just thinking, you know, he's a wunderkind, but he's not emotionally dead inside. Um, yeah, I, I think that Beverly is better in that scene than mm. uh, than Wesley is, but to me, it's still kind of a, a weak point because I feel like it's another one of those times that the writers don't quite know how to write for a kid. I'm very sorry to keep doing all of this foreshadowing, but I would actually mm-hmm. argue that that could be the best scene in the entire episode. Wow! Wow! And, and, right, I, well, and we'll, I will we'll I will make that it. argument later. Yes. Okay. So okay. So if you're um, keeping track, and, and and don't worry, I have actually made a note of. Of talking about it later, so it won't be one of those oh, things goodness. where I say, "Hey, we'll talk about that later." And then, like three weeks from now, people are like, "Why? Why do you like that scene?" I don't know. Yeah, you get an email, and you're yeah. like, "I have no idea. I don't, I don't even know really what you're talking about." Did we? Did yeah. we watch an episode called The Bonding? I don't. Because yeah. yeah. episode that the titles they skate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that was the one with the slaver weapon, right? Yeah. Right. No. Right. Apparently not. Yeah. Um, I, I did find it funny how Jeremy never aged from age uh, seven to twelve. Mm. He's in the old the, the home video footage, and his father is still alive. <laughs> well, and he's never identified it as as his father, but yeah, we do know that it was a while ago. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. they're in the house that's eventually going to be remade here. Plus, their cat's not dead. What happened yeah. to the cat, by the way? You don't want to know. That's man. Just you don't ask. It's like the puppies <laughs> on the prize. Oh, you don't sh- ask. no, we established what happened to them. Yeah, yeah and right. I don't like to think about it. Yeah. Um. And for that matter, why do they keep leaving this kid alone in his quarters? 
you know, Picard's like, okay, Deanna, this is your job. You you have to talk to the kid emotionally about it. And she's like, yeah, I'm I'm all over that. I'm on that. Cut to child alone in a dark room watching cat videos. Yeah, all by himself. Don't want to be all by himself. <laughs> by himself. But, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And, and I'm a little disappointed that the name of the cat is Patches. Why? I, just because it's the 24th century, so? and it, it's very obvious. I thought it would have had maybe a Klingon name, or maybe... Well, I wouldn't have a Klingon name, because he just learned about Klingons in school. Hey, uh, well, uh, something a little more, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe a Lord Bigglesworth, or something like that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Mr. Whiskers. Yeah, I just, yeah. I wanted to be a little more creative. All right, well... That's okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not Ronald D. Moore. Ronald D. Moore, I defer to you, you know what you're doing. Well, I mean, here's the thing, is that really what you're going to waste your time on? Not you, not you personally. I mean, Ronald D. Moore. Do you think he's like, yeah? I think I've got this great episode of Star Trek, but I can't name the cat. He's got he, he's got bigger cats to fry. Oh, ick! And yeah. now we know what happened to the cat. <laughs> um, I was kind of amused at where precisely all the players were on the set when we went back and forth between the Astor uh, quarters and the Astor house. It was like you'd have a character sitting and then uh, on a couch, and then they're sitting on the couch that's actually in the quarters. Although the house is way, way bigger than their quarters. Mm-hmm. So every time they would cut back, I was like, well, wait a minute. Is that person standing where they would actually be outside the ship at that point? How do you get them back to where they were? But, but Oh, they no, I love this. I love this. Yeah. I mean, this actually solves the um, – it seems to me that we've solved the Moriarty conundrum at this point. The problem with Moriarty is, of course, he can't get off the holodeck because, oh, there's no way to do stuff off the holodeck with a holodeck. And yet this thing is basically holodecking. By mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. by rerouting power from the from the uh, central part of the ship and then doing whatever magic stuff it does or whatever sufficiently advanced technology that appears as magic, right? I mean, right. basically, she's creating a holodeck in Jeremy Astor's quarters, and yeah. you know, once you establish that you can do that, there's no reason that we can't have Moriarty serving uh, serving at the helm, eh, except we for the part where he's maniacal, you know. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, though, there's no reason you can't have Moriarty uh, as, as an active member of your crew. It would be nice if we had him back to find out. Yeah. If that- Think we ever will? Oh, who could possibly right. say? Yeah. Hey, but look, we're only three episodes. No, I'm sorry. We're, we're what? Uh, five episodes yeah. into season three. And we have another, I thought that was interesting, compassionate but misguided alien with tremendous power. And, and this is an interesting trend because it's nice to see Star Trek this early on and next gen with alien of the week, but not a lot of bad guy of the week. A lot of kind of misunderstood alien of the week. It's also um, interesting to see an alien with uh, some limits to its power. We're given mm-hmm, to understand that mm-hmm. Kevin has absolutely no limits to his power, although then why he didn't do more for the planet is a good question. But yeah, no, this one's like, I mean, this one is actually solving problems. Like, okay, we're energy, but we need a lot more energy than we have. Oh, but they've got batteries, so we can make this happen, but I'm still going to have to, you know, walk the maze to get the kid back down here. I mean, it was, right. it's, it, they're powerful aliens, they're advanced aliens, but they're not all powerful aliens, which is kind yeah. of awesome. And it was stuff that was kind of justified the more you learned about them. I thought that was kind of cool, worked out pretty well. Um, and I, another thing that I found very interesting here, uh, because we got a lot of uh, email and commentary about this after we did the episode, The Emissary, in which we met uh, War's girlfriend, Kalar. Yeah. Um, that this was another glimpse into Worf's psychology. And the way that a lot of people put this to us was, here's a guy trying to be more Klingon than Klingon. So he is an orphan. He is the only Klingon among this 
Federation crew. So he's constantly kind of overcompensating and maybe going back to the, you know, the, the sacred Klingon texts and the sacred Klingon traditions and playing them out because he feels like that's what he needs to do. And the way he inserts himself onto, um, you know, Jeremy's situation Say, well, this is what I have to do. We have to have the ritual because this is what my people do. I thought that was uh, equally interesting, uh, a parallel to his maybe other bonding with Kalar. Wow. Worf has a brother. Let us hope he fares better than Kirk's brother or Spock's. It's a pretty minor but pretty profound moment between Data and Riker in Ten Forward. When we want to talk about favorite or least favorite scenes in here, that that was definitely a favorite of mine. Mm. Um, How well did we know Lieutenant Astor? And then the realization that we would maybe not be so callous toward the deaths of others if we saw them as human the same way that we do those who are close to us. And, uh, And Riker's line after that, history would be a lot less bloody. Um, I I don't think that's a line that needs a lot of explanation or interpretation. Mm -hmm. I I think the scene is laid out perfectly. Yeah. And so nice to have data there as the person to ask that. Yeah. Uh, The more you know could have played right after that scene, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and it would have been fine. Um, Michael D. Moore is a great writer or or at the very least, this is a great bit of writing. Okay. Or, or, or you mean Ronald D. Moore? Because Ronald Michael D. Moore. Moore no, no, Michael. Great, Michael D. Moore doesn't exist. Michael Moore yeah. is a documentary yes. filmmaker. Ronald D. Moore. I apologize. Ronald D. Moore right. is a great writer. Yeah. Or this is a bit great, a uh, great bit of writing. Um, the scene is understated. It actually borders on comedy, mm-hmm. but it's incredibly deep. Um, with the whole thing of you know, how well did you know her? Mm, not very. How well did you know her? Why do you ask? Wait, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. It actually could have gone Laurel and Hardy there for a second, and it kind of does. I mean. I hate to... Well, no, I don't. I think the Marx Brothers came out with some of the most profound lines ever. And if this had gone Laurel and Hardy, it actually still could have ended up being an incredibly profound thing. And it really does start down that way. Like, I thought I thought it was trying to be amusing at first. Mm-hmm. And I think in that way, it actually it gets to sort of an emotional core a bit more easily. It, 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 it knocks you off kilter a tiny bit. We're not going to sit here and be all serious. We're going to... Hey, wait a minute. Are you being funny? Oh, no, you're not being funny. Okay. Yeah. Um... I feel weird talking about this because it's very much a, 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 a current events thing as we record this. It, maybe it's a thing that will be remembered or maybe it's going to end up being a meme. I don't know. But as we record this, somebody just shot a lion. And somebody just shot a lion that people knew. And that's weird to me because I didn't know that we knew specific lions. But apparently there's a group of people that do know specific lions as one lion's dead. And we hear about poachers all the time. We hear about hunting all the time. But everybody's really upset about this one lion in particular. And I don't know if that guy's ever going to be able to come back to the States. <laughs> but yeah, right. at the same time that this lion's dying, I don't know how many people died in Buffalo last night. I don't know how many people died in L.A. last night. I don't know how many people died anywhere in the U.S. or across the country or around the world. I know that when I go to watch the news later tonight, I will hear about some conflict in which 10 people died, 20 people died, 100 people died, maybe. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm, and, and, and the planet is, is, is gripped by, by this lion that died. And there's something – I mean there's something very poetic and very beautiful. And sadly, we haven't even begun to even uh, – it's getting worse, not better in the 27, 26, 25 years since this 
episode was shot between then and and our being our recording it right now. Yeah. So I mean, you're right. It's not. I mean, it's a, it's it's a fairly bonk bonk on the head episode. The only problem is people hit you on the head long enough, you don't feel it anymore. And that's that's sort of. I mean, that's it, it's amazing that. I mean, sometimes data's questioning is is simple uh, to the point of ridiculousness. And this was actually a very simple question. It's sort of like, wow, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to bring up a current event, here's the thing. The, 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 the thing that worries me is that we could have recorded this show a year ago or five years ago or a year from now or five years from now. Mm-hmm. And the current event will be the same. It'll just be inserting a different, um, right. a, a different focal point. Yes. You know, so in this case, it's a lion, but in another case, it'll be uh, a person or a different animal or something that everybody will focus on. And I think there's something wrong with trying to force the argument to say that, uh, well, you know, how dare we care about one thing more than another thing? The point is that we we should care about it all. And for whatever reasons that are beyond our control, some things take more precedence and and more public attention than yeah. others don't don't misunderstand but, i'm not upset that some people are upset about a lion but people are dying this time last sure. year it would have been a guy who died because he was selling loose cigarettes out of, outside of a convenience store sure i mean and yeah. that and that yeah, was yeah. a current event one year ago this month yeah. and next year i would love it if next year we didn't have one i would love it if next year we had to go yeah remember remember like last year when that happened or two years ago when that happened or five years ago when that happened yeah. It's possible we'll have five to choose from between now and recording, you know, uh, the yeah. next one of these this time next year. Exactly. So, which yeah. is which is a bummer. What do you do with that at that point, though? I know people who walk around constantly feeling bad about the fact that somebody died somewhere. Literally, you yeah. know, there are alerts on your phone that you can get that will tell you about crimes, that will tell you about earthquakes and tornadoes and floods. And I know people who have them on their phones, and every time one comes across, they feel bad. I don't want to be yeah. that guy. I don't want to be the guy who constantly walks around feeling bad and then feeling worse because I don't feel worse at the same time. I don't want to be the guy who's like, oh, wow, another guy died. Bummer. Yeah. Where, where do you want to eat? Yeah, right. Right. So um, let's move on to another topic here. No, you want uh, to? Because this one's well, fun. This one's fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what's so interesting about it is that you, know, you and I kind of keyed into the same thing about this. And I think everybody who watches this will key into the same thing. Mm-hmm. But it's not the point of the episode necessarily. It is a great moment that makes a great point. Mm-hmm. But there are other things that happen here that are really the, the focus of the episode. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we talked about before was – Kind of the weird idea of using the holodeck as a place where people could potentially escape and and creepily recreate a dead loved one. We talked about that when we discussed Skin of Evil. Mm-hmm. And it, it's an interesting idea to note here since that was Ronald D. Moore's original plan in the script for The Bonding. So that changed. He They, they didn't want to do another holodeck episode, but that's where this would have gone. Hmm. Um so, but where we go with it, um, hmm. I'm sorry, we, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. that actually makes it psychologically, that actually makes it a little bit more of an interesting episode, though. I, it, I think so, too. Yeah, but yeah. I understand not wanting to do another holodeck episode. And, and, yeah. and, and honestly, the way that it was rewritten uh, does open up some other questions, but I'm sure we'll get to those questions. Yeah. Well, and it would have been another very interesting parallel to Tasha Yar, or again, you know, if it's Wesley coming in to have his talk at the end but he's doing that in a holodeck with a, a virtually created marla astor rather than the alien created marla astor mm-hmm. 
Um, but what the alien here is offering to Jeremy is flawed, to be sure. And Picard asks what I was thinking. What about when he needs friends and, and needs an education? And, and Troy was paralleling this as well. What about those awkward teenage years when he needs to find himself? And uh, what about when he decides he's more into girls or guys than his own family and he wants a family of his own? I foresee a conversation almost like something out of Metamorphosis, where, where the alien has to be taught <laughs> that if somebody loves them, then set them free. Um, so I wondered in this case, are we at all concerned with what Jeremy wants, or rather what we've decided is good for Jeremy? Because if Jeremy chooses to stay on that planet, even if it's for a brief time, and then he, he calls the Enterprise back and says, I have to get out of here. Um, with that alien avatar of his, of his mother, then would he be happier? And if so, what's the difference in that and huffing spores? Hmm. Agent, and I'm not saying I'm no. not saying that to needle you at all. No, I mean you can't help but think about that in this episode. And honestly, the way I the way I was able to deal fine with what happened in this episode as opposed to what happened on the side of paradise is Age of Consent, with a little bit of the Matrix as well. Um, hmm. I mean, Jeremy's twelve. Of course, yeah. he's going to. What, what what was the episode? Was it it was um oh the naked now right where where uh, uh, Crusher orders ice cream for every meal or something or dessert <laughs> right. for every meal for everybody on the Enterprise hooray we're gonna do that okay well Crusher first of all has grown up a lot in the last two seasons second he's sure. not as much of a fun drunk as you would hope that somebody would be <laughs> if they were drunk but the third thing I will say is I mean I mean kids make dumb decisions if you if you get to the age of consent. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't even say kids make dumb decisions because honestly, Jeremy's decision there would not have been dumb. It would have been understandable. Totally understandable. But he's not old enough to make that decision. This is not like, you know, we dropped uh, a bunch of five year olds off on Omicron SETI 3. This is, you know, I mean, those were adults who, uh, but then we can go back into the same argument that we've been having literally for years now about whether or not there was any consent <laughs> there, but that's fine. I say all this happens with the touch of the Matrix as well. I think Neo and company were wrong to try to free everyone in the Matrix. Uh, most of the people didn't want to be free. Most of the people, you know, didn't want to think. A lot of people today don't want to think, which is why you get King of Queens marathons and, you know, reality shows from, from, from Dawn straight all the way back through to Dawn again. Yeah. Um, we can't make decisions for every person. But, I mean, what I was thinking about at one point was, I mean, in that questioning that uh, Picard was doing with, uh, with the Marla thing and vice versa – it takes a village. I mean, we've we've decided to we've decided to have some hand in how kids grow up. Past that, there's not a lot we can do. Certain drugs are illegal. We do that part, but you know, there are plenty of legal ways to anesthetize yourself, and we're fine with people doing that. We're not quite so fine with kids doing it, although we don't always recognize that that's what kids are actually doing, and that right. we're letting them do it. But you know, hopefully, if, if somebody said, "Look, I've got this drug that's going to make your kid completely happy forever." We'd be like, eh, maybe we could teach him ways to be happy before we, you know, revert to that. I do have a question, mm-hmm. and I think this was sort of alluded to in the last segment. Uh, the Koinonians feel responsible for Jeremy and his happiness, and I can't figure out why. This war was not theirs. The bombs weren't theirs. You asked about, you know, why didn't they go about cleaning it up? Why did they feel responsible for what happened to Jeremy? I mean, sort of, I would look at it. I would think that they would look at it and go, "Wow, another meat bag bought it. God, remember how stupid those meat bags were? I'm glad there are no more meat bags on this planet. Hopefully these meat bags will leave soon. I'm not sure why they feel it's their responsibility to make Jeremy happy since the war was not theirs. I mean, it was just 
in their neighborhood, basically. Yeah. Well, so look at it this way. I mean, it it may not actually be important to the episode to understand that. Mm -hmm. But let's go back to the Riker conversation with Data. That is the crux of that question. So if Data or Riker can realize that, you know, we would be a lot more evolved and we'd be a lot better off and our history would be a lot different if we realized that a death means something no matter who that happened to or, mm-hmm. or who is affected by that. Hmm. So maybe these Koinonians have grown to that point where they can actually understand the idea that de- even if it's not our species, even if it's not on our our plane of existence, we understand that death has impact. So even if we can't prevent it, we'll try to do something to ease it. Did you look up Koinonia, by the way? No, no, never See, been there. Uh, there was a uh, no. There was a there was a bookstore uh, run by my church when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were Southerners, so we called it Koinonia because we didn't know any better. But it's actually pronounced Koinonia. Hmm. I looked it up on Wikipedia, so you know it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, translated from the Greek word something in Greek, which means communion, joint participation, the share which mm-hmm. one has in anything, participation, a gift jointly contributed. Da, 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 da. So on the one hand, you can say, well, they they feel that sense of I mean, just because they were there. Then, yeah. then, and they, because they know about this, then they feel like you know there's something they have to do, or they have to do something. They have to share in in, in making it better, yeah, even though they didn't actually share in in uh, wrecking it. At the same time, I mean, then we go back to the thing that I said earlier. I mean, so is it now the Koinonian mission <laughs> to build <laughs> starships, get off their planet, so they can go and make everything better for everyone, or is it just about geography? Because you're right, I didn't see it that way, but it is an interesting parallel to to the conversation between Riker and Data. I mean, they know about this death, so they have to do something. Death is happening all the time. Eh, that they don't have to do anything about. Yeah. And yet, yeah. They feel, and yet they feel obligated for this one because, you know, they saw it. Right. Yeah, I mean, maybe the Koinonians, uh, either they have a deeper understanding or, or it's simply a matter of their existence that this is who and how they are now. Mm. Uh, we, we, the only thing that we see of the Koinonians is this disembodied non-corporeal energy thing going around the ship. They, they can kind of go anywhere, do anything. Yeah. Um, whether they have evolved to that point from a physical being, we don't know. Um, well, they said that they were two different things. They said there were two races that lived there, one matter, one energy. So, right. Oh, right, right, right. I mean, yeah. maybe a billion years ago they evolved that way, but right. the sense that I get is they were present for the wars, but they weren't part of the wars. They saw the whole thing happen, but they weren't. they weren't part of it because it was a war between the physical Quinonians. In fact, we don't actually see a Quinonian. She yeah. says, the energy being says, these people that you call Quinonians uh, destroyed yeah. each other and themselves. And maybe that was all they needed to see. Maybe the, that was enough. But again, it's the tipping point that changes their view of the universe. Mm-hmm. It says, okay, we, we've seen these physical beings completely wipe each other out. We are rededicated to if we can't prevent that, we are rededicated to the idea that any loss is tragic and any loss has to be dealt with. And in the small misguided way, going to help Jeremy is, is their interpretation of that. Hmm. Yeah. So I love the scene mm-hmm. and we will get to it later. <laughs> I love the scene between uh, Crusher and uh, Crusher. The law mm. office of Crusher and Crusher. Actually, I guess it's a medical practice. But I love the scene mm-hmm. between Crusher and Crusher. You've got this other scene that you absolutely love in this episode. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. So I love the scene with Wesley and Picard. Mm-hmm. And, but here's the thing. Not because it's a particularly good scene or particularly well played. Mm-hmm. 
But finally, we have some depth to the Picard-Wesley relationship. I loved it because this is what I always imagined. It's, it's what I wanted, but I wanted so much more. So I love it, but it's a disappointment at the same time. I'm sure the Germans have a word for that. Um, <laughs> Kolbe. <laughs> love but disappointment. Um, th- this is the kind of emotional arc that really could have informed everything from the outset. Hmm. But I feel like we only just now maybe discovered, maybe the writers just now discovered it. And when I say writers, I mean Ronald D. Moore. I wish this scene had been maybe played in that shuttle pod where we got a hint of it in that shuttle pod earlier Hmm. um, when it was just Picard and Wesley. But it's interesting to think that you could go back and insert this underlying current of resentment and, and, and difficulty for Wesley. Here's where I go back to the idea that they don't really know what to do with kids on the Enterprise um, or Star Trek in general. Wesley is a wunderkind. Sure, he's smart. We get that. But he's also a teenager. And Wesley is very often played as the least emotional person on the ship next to Data. Data has an interesting conversation with Riker. What what does this mean that you knew her? How did you know her? How does that affect death? But it's Wesley having these conversations about, oh, so what's that like? How do you get over it? And and yeah, and, and I understand what, what we're trying to do. We're trying to show that he's inexperienced. But very often we show Wesley as being emotionally detached in a way that feels very unrealistic to me. So it was nice to insert a bit of an edge just to give him something where Mm -hmm. he gets to say, I hate that and I hated you and I got over it. But that's a great meaty thing for an actor to work with. And if only they had been working with that from Encounter at Farpoint forward. Boy, would that have been interesting to see that really play out. Adding a child to the mix can sometimes ruin a show. What effect did the addition of Jeremy Astor have on the bonding? Death and Dying, 101. <laughs> oh, might have been the uh, might, or maybe uh, the grieving process, 101. Might have been uh, might have been alternate titles uh, uh, for this episode, or something in German. Time now for us to figure out, though, what the uh, messages, morals, and meanings of this episode are and whether or not the whole episode stands the test of time. Let's start with holding up. Um, the bonding, John. Does the bonding hold up, in your opinion? You know, despite what Colby and Moore said about young Gabriel <laughs> playing Jeremy Astor, um, I, I think the show ends up working very well. You know, we just went from an episode that has a lot of plot to one that is quieter and more talky and introspective. And I'm really okay with that. It's nice to see Star Trek finally deal with death uh, on the small screen. We, we've had big arcs in the movies where we dealt with it. Um, though mm. it does... Wait, do you think we uh, actually dealt with it on the big screen, or do you think people just died on the big screen? Well, that's interesting. We, we let Kirk kind of sort of deal with it and then kind of sort of fix it. Yeah. But there's a lot of talk. Oh, yeah. A lot of talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, no, but that's a good point. Um, 
but it does make you wonder how everyone else on board feels when not such a big deal is made out of other losses. We just saw the Borg, you know, not that that long ago, slice out a section of the hull and suck 18 crew members out to their deaths. Yeah. Um, or, or maybe possibly put a, uh, a force field around them and bring them in to assimilate them. But eh, why get into details like that? Um, I found this much more emotionally provocative than when I first watched it. Definitely choked up every now and then, uh, but but not so much about Jeremy, but rather for all the other people around him who seem lost, like like Worf. Mm. And that was fascinating to me. The Worf plotline isn't played with subtlety at all, but but it's really good. It's really interesting stuff. Um, and just in another respect, I thought the idea of an alien coming to recreate a lost loved one has a very Twilight Zone feel to it. Um, so, yeah, I, I'll give this one a holds up as a production. You can say what you like about the acting. You can say what you like about the pacing. But, um, but overall, I, I think it was a nice change of pace to get an episode like this. Hmm. How about you? Uh, I think there are incredibly wonderful things to say about the acting in this episode and incredibly horrible things to say about – I don't know if I would say it's about the acting or the directing. There is a fantastic – there's just a moment. There is just a moment. Riker and Marla Astor played around. Mm-hmm. And we're given to understand this with nothing more than two lines of dialogue and a look on, mm-hmm. uh, on, uh, on Frake's face. Data says, how well did you know Lieutenant Astor? And Riker gets this, like, just a tiny little smile and says, we spent some time together. And then, yeah. and then he pauses and his face turns darker and he says, not very well. And in that moment, this is not about Riker thinking about Lieutenant Astor's death. This is about Riker thinking about what he's doing with his life, what he's done with his life so far, what his relationships are like. This is all of that. And it happens inside of 15 seconds, maybe less. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I felt like that was just a just a monumental piece of writing, even before you get to the Laurel and Hardy, how well did you know her, how well did you know her, why do you ask? I mean, before you get to that, there's something wonderful that happens with Frakes in that, in that scene. No, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, from the moment that you cut to that shot, and here's a guy in a bar with a drink. Yeah. I think you start a, to a put drink, that together. A, a drink, yeah. by the way, that he is not enjoying, but he is going to drink it. Yeah. 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 Whatever it's doing for him. It is not providing pleasure, but it's doing something. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all had those drinks a time or two. Maybe not all of us. And if you haven't, good on you. It's like <laughs> to be charmed. Um, Beverly could not be more damaged in her scene with Wesley. And I was angry the first time I watched that scene. I was angry. Mm. And she says, we had each other. And I'm thinking, even the first time I watched it, yeah, had past tense. Because you were completely oblivious, oblivious Excuse me, to the fact that your son is hurting. It does, however, lead to this amazingly wonderful moment, and I would honestly say it's probably the first real acting that we have had from Gates McFadden in Next Gen. Now, she was gone for a season, but mostly she's been this character who has to say things. Mostly she's been this character who sometimes she stands up to the captain, sometimes she's sympathetic to Wes. This episode, I was, I was, I was angry that, that, that this woman could not see the pain that her son was in, and here's the thing. We're seeing the pain that she's in. We're seeing her inability to deal with the fact that her son is in pain is what lets us into the fact that she's in pain. And when she does not have a word to say to Wes, when he finally gets to the point that she can't deal with it anymore, she goes over and hugs him. And I swear to God, <laughs> that was like that was like movie quality. That was that was literature quality. That was that was that was such an incredible, amazing moment. And that to me is what made that honestly the best scene in this episode. Is it the meatiest? No. Is it the most thought provoking? No. But it was the most real. 
gosh, and yeah, I, it's I so have not seen that from 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 Gates McFadden at all in yeah. in the series so far, and I'm not faulting her on that because I don't know that she's had a lot to do. Man, he gave her the best scene. Sadly, she was playing off off uh, off Crusher, and and I don't know that it's young Wesley Crusher, excuse me, and I don't know that it's writers don't know what to do. I think it's the directors don't know what to do. I think I think the assumption is that. A kid can't handle emotional gravitas because if it had been Jordy sitting at the helm when that call came in and, and, and whatever Picard said had to do with Jordy, he would not have turned around and looked meaningfully at Riker. What yeah. we would have seen instead was like something flick across his face. And that's what they should have. That's how they should have directed. And I, I hate to be that guy. I'm, 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 the, I'm, the, I'm the barista who says, you know what I would have done. <laughs> right. But I mean, I, I wish they had I wish they had trusted uh, Will Wheaton to be able to show emotion without being so emotive. Do you know what I mean? Because well, I, we'll I could have yeah. seen pain on his face and been like, wow, that's got to hurt. As opposed to his, his playing like a Christina's World pose <laughs> to, look over at, <laughs> to look over at Riker to, to really demonstrate that, oh, yeah, this is painful for me. Well, that's why I love the scene at the end with him and mm-hmm. not so much the earlier scene. I agree with you about Gates because there's a, it, it's in the eyes. There's a moment with her where you see everything that's going on right. in her head as the character and that's that's magic yeah that, that's really great what i don't like is that i feel like uh wesley and and y- you know you hesitate because there's the actor but then there's also the character and then there's also the director directing the actor to do those words yeah so whatever the the miscombination is of that we don't get that emotionally out of Wesley in that moment. And that's why I wanted to see some some fire and some conflict in him. But to Gates's credit, she's she's in it. And the best moments of that are the moments where there are no dialogue. And you may actually, I mean, here's the thing, though. You may be able to justify Wesley's almost emotional idiocy on this whole thing if what he's always gotten from his mother is, not now, I'm working. Okay. Can't you see I'm ignoring yeah. you? Can't you see I don't want to deal with this? Can't you see I can't deal with this? Ah, you're going to make me deal with this, aren't you? And then yeah. and then we're back to that moment where they do have each other, even though yeah. it's, you know, 10, 12 years later, however much it's been. Um, I love Worf's passion. Sure. You, you talked about the fact that it might be Worf sort of reverting. I love the fact that Worf does not run tepid. Mm-hmm. We, we, <laughs> right. we had sex. Let's get married. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Your yeah. mom's dead. We're family now. I like the fact that, I mean, he is, I mean, he... He lives. He, I mean, he lives. I mean, he, he, he decides and he does. And no, I mean, sometimes, look, if he did everything that he wanted to do, uh, the Enterprise would have been destroyed in like episode two. <laughs> right. Let's right. fire on those people. Let's turn yeah. up the shield. Let's, let's blow something up. I mean, you know, it's not, always, it's not always the best, but in his personal dealings, I mean, the whole thing with Kalar, I mean, he had a feeling about Kalar. He had feelings for Kalar. And, yeah. you know, he's like, I, I, I want to live those feelings. I want to act that way. I want to be that guy. And she's like, yeah, okay, I appreciate the fact that you want to be. I'm not so sure I'm ready. And, you know, sort of the same thing with Jeremy Astor. Um, one more thing. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm going off here for a while. Oh, it's fine, man. We've had the eighth season Yep. for us. Uh, we've yep. done three episodes of the original series, two of the animated series. Uh, we are starting season three of Next Gen, plus we got the movies in there somewhere. And they have finally made an argument for me for why we need our pain. Uh, do we have a sound effect? Do we have a, do we well, have a bell? I, I think do we somebody just played one that went, <gasps> so I mean, <laughs> that counts as a sound effect. Um, <laughs> a, 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 they made an argument that I can actually hear. Now, I, you know, we can still have the argument about is happiness a state or is there a series of moments and all that stuff. 
here here has been the problem at this point, and I don't know if I'm going to fault writing in the 1960s versus writing in the 1980s. I don't know if I'm going to fault directors. I don't know if I'm going to fault Shatner. I don't know if I'm going to fault Kirk. But it was always just lines on a page. We call it freedom, and you'll like it a lot, right? It was always just things that you said to get to the next point. And, and, and Shatner standing there telling Cybok, I need my pain. Well, he never makes the case for why. And Picard actually, I mean, I don't know if it's Patrick Stewart is a better actor. I don't know if it's that Ronald D. Moore is a better writer. I don't know if we are a more mature audience at this point. We expect a bit more nuance from our television. But I, I was like, okay, I can hear you. I could never hear I could never hear Kirk saying it because Kirk always sailed in knowing what Kirk was going to do. There was very little um, you know contemplation on Kirk's part. They're standing on the bridge and Picard's like this can't happen. And Crusher and Riker are like but you can see how you'd want it to, right? And Picard doesn't say, "Oh yeah, I totally see it." But I mean, you know, I mean Picard is actually being presented with many different sides of this at this point. And you know, for him to say, "Look, we got X amount of time." And, and we have to deal with the fact that we have X amount of time. And so we're, we're going to do that. I also like the fact that, I mean, Kirk says, I need my pain. Yeah. Picard says, we need our pain and our joy. And that's, that's different. And that's, that's, it's, it's an amazing consideration of the whole thing to me. Sadly, though, the episode doesn't hold up, John. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Except, of course, it does. I, I have a feeling that this is going to be something you're going to hear from now on, but we've now hit my favorite episode of, of Next Gen so far. And I feel certain wow. that there are more favorite wow. episodes to come. But this, okay. dude, when I was practicing reading the recap earlier, because I actually do practice it, mm-hmm. I, I teared up. Wow. This episode wow. touched yeah. me on an emotional level like almost nothing else has. Uh, in Star Trek that we've seen, so uh, yeah, yeah, I I would agree with you there. I mean, like, like I said, there, there were moments, there were moments that I felt myself choked up that didn't have to do with the things that I thought would make me choke up because it was about all the ancillary characters yeah. to to Jeremy, and that was really great. I, I think that is the the mark of a great writer here um, in Ronald D. Moore. So um, not Michael yeah. Moore, not Michael. No, Moore. no, not not Michael Moore. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but what about messages? I, I, what did you get? Um, well, I mean, there is actually the whole. I mean, it takes a village. I need my pain. Death is actually a real thing, even if it's not someone that you know. I mean, there's. I, yeah. I, and I don't. I, that that honestly is one of the toughest ones uh, for me to deal with because I mean, is a dinosaur junior. I feel the pain of everyone, then I feel nothing. Mm. I mean, that's kind of the problem, right? You can't, mm-hmm. you can't walk around constantly beset by feelings of, of grief because there are people dying everywhere, because there are people dying everywhere. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have no idea how many ambulances I heard today, and I don't know that everybody there was dying. But, I mean, you know, there's, there's pain all around. And on the one hand, you, you want to make sure that you don't become numb to it. On the other hand... You want to make sure you're not paralyzed by the fact that somebody is in pain somewhere, so I must be too. I don't know. So I don't know if that's a lesson or a message, but it means except that the message is, wow, think about this for a minute. Yeah. Maybe only for a minute, because seriously, you'll want to not rock in the corner sometime. Yeah. Um, it's difficult for me, actually, to, to say, you know, here is the message or even here is a message, because this is just such a rich, meaty episode. Um, with with so many things to uh, so many things to consider. Except uh, I, I, will, I will say there is a definitely one lesson here: fake tears don't work. Don't make oh, the, no. don't make no, the no, kid no, cry. Just just direct the kid to look sad or sullen because he's sure. done a pretty good job of that all the way through. Sure. All of a sudden, when there's like you know 
uh, rubber cement running down his face. I'm like, yeah, no, just, just stop that. What about you? Messages, in particular messages that you picked up? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the contemplation uh, brought on by that uh, Riker and Data scene is is so great, and it mm. is so profound and, and wonderful to just sort of wrap your head around it for a moment, like mm-hmm. you said, even if it's for a moment. But hopefully we have many of those moments. Um, there, There's an exploration of grief, that, that there's really no right way to grieve, but, but whatever that way is, helps you have friends around when you need them. And um, that leads into this other idea that Star Trek has looked at before, that there's a family you're born with, but here we are with this ship full of orphans, and then the family you choose or rather is chosen for you, and then that becomes the new family. So it was so nice to see that moment with um, uh, sort of worse, almost desperation to, mm-hmm. to have a family bond with this kid. Um, really, really great. And then Picard said it, and I'll say it again, we need our pain, and yes, Ken, we need our joy. That was a nice, uh, a nice bookend to what a, a three-year-long three-year long conversation we've had. Oh, I don't think we're done with it. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. no. I, sure I, I don't, I don't yeah. imagine we can be. For all those fascinating things to ponder, yes, I would say that they all hold up because they're all big, meaty ideas that we get to grapple with. And as you pointed out, smaller episode, too. I mean, mm-hmm. another, another episode, we might have been on the planet. We might have seen the Quinonians, you know, might have done the whole thing, might have tried to fake the explosion. This whole thing happens on the Enterprise. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it happens on a, you know, fake house that's not actually there on the Enterprise on the Enterprise, but the whole thing happens on the Enterprise. It really is just a, right. yeah, really just a fantastic episode. All right, Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at roddenberry.com, where there's just a, a whole treasure trove of information and cool products and exciting projects from Roddenberry, roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Running the risk of getting us an explicit tag, the title of next week's show, Booby Trap. <laughs> Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. While it will probably not be that kind of episode, the title of next week's show makes one wonder how many shades of gray we will be talking about then. End transmission. <laughs>